In the name of God, the life-giving, all-loving, and incarnate word, amen. Whom do you serve? What do you bow down to? What are the things within this beautiful but sometimes bruising world that we let claim us, that we put our trust, our hope, our faith in? This, my friends, is the question that our gospel sets before us this morning, and I want to help us, if not completely answer it, at least try to understand it a little better. And I want to begin to do so with a story. I fell in love with poetry my junior year in high school. I was a bright-eyed 17-year-old and enrolled in a wonderful hybrid history lit course called American Studies. And I can remember sitting in that class one afternoon in early autumn, listening to our, to our history instructor expound upon the intricacies of early 20th century diplomacy and feeling a little bored. I absentmindedly flipped open my anthology of American literature and found a poem by T.S. Eliot entitled The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. I read its very opening lines and was smitten, utterly entranced. Let us go then, you and I, as the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. What? It was so beautiful and so strange. I finished the poem and felt electrified, set aflame. I started the poem over and read it again and again and again, and I could not shake my amazement at the feeling that this poet, who'd been dead for over 40 years, had somehow revealed something of the truth to me so intensely and in a manner that transcended time and place. And I decided there and then that all I wanted to do was to try to create that experience for other people. Fast forward nine years, and I'm home after finishing my first semester in seminary. I'm sitting in my rector's study at my sending parish, and I'm still fervently in love with poetry. And I remember passionately telling this priest that what I most wanted to do was create poetry that would reveal God's glory and beauty in new and compelling ways. And I can remember him slowly leaning forward in his chair, carefully removing his reading glasses, then staring intently, but caringly, even paternally into my eyes and saying, Travis, at some point, everything must bow. Everything must bow. I've thought about those words so many times since. What did he mean? In our passage from Luke's gospel today, we find Jesus posing a similar question. And this moment in the 16th chapter of Luke's gospel comes near the end of a lengthy set of teachings. This is Jesus in his full-on rabbi and professor mode. Jesus is nearing Jerusalem, and for half of chapter 14 and all of chapter 15 and 16, he's been pausing to teach the crowd what participation in the life of God looks like. 
He tells him a parable, the one we just heard, that we call the parable of the shrewd manager. And it's a fascinating parable, but what I want to hone in on today is that famous phrase that Jesus utters as a bookend or a postscript to his story. You cannot serve God and wealth. I imagine you've also heard this phrase rendered in a different and more antiquated way. You cannot serve God and mammon. What is Jesus's meaning here? And what in the world is mammon? Mammon comes from a Greek word, which in turn comes from an Aramaic and a Greek word that connotes something like money, riches, wealth, possession. Yet some scholars say that more accurately, a literal translation would be that in which one puts one's trust. And if we look a bit closer at this sentence and do one more piece of word study, we discover that the word translated here as to serve you can only serve, you can only, you can, one cannot serve God or mammon, is steeped with meaning too. The word in Greek, which is douleo, if you're interested, connects not just with the word for servant, but also the word for slave, and literally means not just to serve, but to be devoted to, to obey, to be subject to, to belong to someone or something. On the surface, people often interpret this statement, you cannot serve God and mammon, to mean that God and money or God and wealth are opposed or somehow always antithetical. But I don't think that's quite what Jesus is trying to say. Jesus' concern here and always is about our health, about the way we relate with God, with one another, and with the wider world. Ultimately, Jesus' concern is about freedom, deeper freedom for us and for all people. And Jesus, I think, is asking us to pause with him and ask ourselves, what are the things in which we are placing our trust, our hope, and our faith? What are we devoted to? What are we allowing ourselves to be subject to? What are we bowing down to? And are those things giving us deeper life? Or are they draining life from us? Because it isn't that money or even wealth is bad in and of itself. At least in our society, until we reach the vision that we see in the book of Acts in which members of the church and society hold all things in common, we need money to purchase goods. And there's nothing wrong with doing what we need to in order to provide for ourselves and for our family. But money, like anything, like poetry or our work or our hobbies, can also take hold of us, can own us, can force us to bow down. As a quick aside on money, one of the best pastors I've known used to say that money is like breath. It's essential and has deep value, but it's not meant to be held. Hold money or your breath too tightly and you'll end up in distress and pain. It's a gift that is given and is meant to be given back and given away. Both Jesus and my rector spoke to a very natural tendency we all have as humans, to fall in love with the good and lovely things of this created world rather than their creator. 
way before my rector, St. Augustine in the fourth century, had a series of insights into the complexity of the human psyche. Augustine was notorious for his deep existential yearnings. And from the brothels of Carthage to the philosophical schools of Milan, for much of his early life, he ran about relentlessly seeking to satisfy, satisfy a hunger for purpose and meaning. And Augustine believed that we're hardwired for desire. And the Christian life ultimately comes down to learning how to do what he called ordering our desires, to order our desires or order our loves. For Augustine, the crucial thing is to fix our hearts on God. And once we do so, we become free to love all the other good, beautiful things in this world as well. We ground our hearts in the love of God and then all the other things that give us joy and meaning. Church and music, bread and wine, poetry and dancing, romance, hiking, skiing, even college football and Netflix. They all take their proper place and constellate around this deeper life that is their source. Everything must bow. I don't think my rector intended this assertion in some life-denying sense. I think he meant this statement with compassion as a way of helping me understand what living life more fully and more freely might look like. I think he saw that I was beginning to see poetry as an end in itself and not a part of or a path to something larger. To borrow an image from C.S. Lewis, he didn't want me to mistake the warmth and light that I was basking in for the sun that is its source. Y'all, our passions and ambitions are amazing things. The things you love and love to do are very good and are part of what makes you uniquely you as a beloved child of God. And when we place such things in their proper order, they can draw new goodness and beauty from being grounded in the life of God and blossom in ways we never could have imagined. So how do we do this practically? How do we order our loves? Personally, I don't feel like any practice works unless I can take it into my body and give it physicality. Whenever I feel like I'm letting something claim my attention, my allegiance, I put my hand on my heart and I close my eyes. I try and feel my heartbeat and get present to the fact that the very life I have is a gift and that all I am can be put in service to the giver of gifts. If I feel like I'm writing to gain the approval of others and satisfy my ego rather than give a gift, I take that pause. Or sometimes I imagine whatever I'm a little too obsessed with is something I'm holding in a clenched fist. I draw my attention to it. I acknowledge it. I even express gratitude for it. And then I let it go. I unfurl my hand and offer it to God so that it can take its proper place in the order of loves within me. Perhaps for you, it might be journaling or taking time to pray, meditate, or talk with a trusted friend. But perhaps sometime this week, you take a little moment to pause and ask yourself if there are things within you you might let bow, loves you might reorder, 
so that you might ground yourself more fully and deeply in the love of God. Hand over the heart from fist to open palm. I want to conclude by offering lines from a poem I wrote not long after getting, a ma- getting married as I attempted to order my loves in the light of fresh demands and commitments that life was inevitably pressing upon me. And on the surface, the poem is a meditation on the million mundane things that life requires. And specifically, it's about yard care which in Austin, Texas, is a full-time commitment and requires lots and lots of watering nine months out of the year. But more deeply, it's a prayer, a prayer to learn to hold life more lightly and become more permeable to the endless succession of God's miracles and love that are always emerging in our midst. Part of the power of poetry is that it can help us not only contemplate spiritual truths intellectually, but also feel them emotionally by connecting with our hearts as well as our heads. So I invite you to close your eyes if you would like, and to just let these words wash over you as an invitation to let anything within you that needs to bow to do so to dwell more deeply with the God who is always loving us into more life, more freedom, more joy, always and right now. Sweep up the leaves that have been gathering. Now pile, bag them, let them burn. We need to feed the flowers. Drag the trash can out at dawn and water every month of every year the lawn. Let all these things you plant dismantle you. Their entropies impedal you. Grace will have its way. One day, say, or now. Everything within you, lashed against the wall or trellis, hacked through by the pickaxe, or raked at with your little trowel, Everything within you, every single thing must bow. Amen.